Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. As always, someone is here. Aaron, Matthew, you guys are both here separately. Is he a someone as well? Yeah, he's a someone. Okay. Last week, last episode, we recorded late at night. In this episode, we're recording really early in the morning. Yeah, I feel like we've made some mistakes in terms of our podcast scheduling because last time it was late on a Friday night. I think so. And today it's super early on a Saturday morning. What were we thinking? Matthew's wearing shades and he looks like an athlete who <laughs> has had a rough night but <laughs> needs to be in, in the public eye a little bit but doesn't want the public to see his eyes, as it were. Yeah. I was up a little bit late, but, you know, I'm here. Got the caffeine going. AJ, you've been sick all week. Yep. I'm here too, though. Well... I'm glad we can come together and talk about the Bible this week, starting with Deuteronomy as we pick up on days 92 through 98. Uh, so AJ, as you've been reading through Deuteronomy, uh, what's been striking you? What have you noticed? What's been of interest? Well, it's a lot of the same events that we've been hearing about. Um, it seems like the Exodus is really key in understanding Deuteronomy. Um, we're seeing a lot of events being recounted and maybe giving more uh, significance to those events. Yeah, absolutely. And in in the text that we're reading for this week, uh, they're really taking a journey towards the promised land, correct? Yeah. Now, as I was reading that, I I was especially interested in the fact that there are so many times when God tells Israel— not to go to war against a certain people or not to try to take their land. Uh, So, for example, he told them, don't try to take this land of Moab because I I designated that to Lot, and the Moabites are his descendants. So I I just thought it was really interesting that uh, you get this idea that God is the one who owns the earth, and he draws the boundaries and gives the land to certain people. And when we look at some of the moral or ethical questions about Israel going in and taking over the land from another people, you start to see that God has actually allowed that to happen for other nations as well. So I forget precisely where it was because I was listening to it as I was making breakfast this morning, but God was talking about how this one people group came in and took out the peoples before them and they possessed the land. And on on the one hand, I think it helps us understand that what Israel is doing is not unique. Um, so that we would say a nation probably shouldn't go in and take over another country, which we're kind of seeing happen in the news as Russia is invading Ukraine. But in, in the ancient world, perhaps we'd say what Israel is doing is normal. So some of our ethical questions wouldn't be as challenging back then. But beyond that, I think it's interesting that God is the one who takes credit for that, which should stand as a bit of a promise for Israel, right? For for them to actually believe that God will give them the ability to possess the land, because he's done that for other nations before them, in keeping with his promises uh, to people. Yeah, in chapter 6, it's very applicable to us today, where in verse five chapter six says you should love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and you should teach these to your children and they should be able to remember what god has done in the past and the promises he's made and and fulfilled to them and 
I found that, you know, just really jarring as I was reading through just this account and then um, <clears throat> just this reminder to love God with your whole being made me kind of stop in the reading. AJ, is your reading this as a father with children and hearing the instructions for parents on how they're to show their children the way of the Lord and to demonstrate what it looks like to love God? How do you put this into practice in your own life? I think, <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. I, we should always be trying to live out our faith in front of anybody, including our children. And <clears throat> that happens more intensely at home where your children see you through all times of day and different trials and situations and stresses. And um, I think there's a, an added weight of um, just being <clears throat> always concerned with what God thinks about how you're acting in that moment. And I think there's practical ways like reading the Bible with your children and praying with them regularly, whether that's during a scheduled family reading time or before bed or at meals, however that works out for you. But uh, just a consistent way of showing them that you need to rely every moment on God and his truth, and you you can't do that unless you're involved with, with church and knowing God's word and recounting God's promises and truth um, in a way that's applicable to your life. Yeah, absolutely. And Matthew is we're reading about individuals who are commanded to take God's word and to bind them as a sign on their hand and to let them be a symbol on your forehead, writing them on the doorposts of your house. Um, have you taken any measures to uh, write down God's word, either on your body or on your doorposts? <laughs> I had uh, I had somebody else write it down, but yeah. So what what do you actually have? inscribed in Hebrew on your forearm? Um, it means commit your way to God or give your life to God, essentially. Yeah, I think that's very fitting, especially with what this text is talking about, because yeah. it's talking about making your whole life conform to the word of the Lord and to remembering it and to living it out. Uh, so I really like that phrase that you have, which is, you know, if really literally like roll over, turn over to, to the Lord, right? And that's what these parents are instructed to do, not only for themselves, but to demonstrate a way of life and, and discipleship to their children where they'll turn their way over to the Lord. I liked chapter eight. Are we getting to that? Well, chapter eight, it, there is that uh, well-known verse in verse three, or at least one that I was forced to memorize. <laughs> um, and he humbled you and let your hunger and fed you with manna you did not know, nor did your father know, that he might make you known. The man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I remember that being one of the verses that I had to memorize. Yeah. It popped out when I was reading. Well, it's significant because Jesus quotes this to Satan or the devil during the wilderness temptations. Uh, every quotation that Jesus quotes during the his temptation is from Deuteronomy, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Um, and then as we read a verse like this, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Um, I think this helps us interpret other books like the book of Ruth that starts out with a famine being in the land, you know? So these covenant curses or consequences for violating covenant faithfulness with God, I think we need to pick up on because they help us understand the events in the rest of the Old Testament. Matthew, you said that you were particularly interested in chapter 8. Yeah, what was it that caught your attention? 
Um, I just think the chapter as a whole is a good um, kind of a good giant summary instruction kind of uh, for life is the way I took it because obviously it's talking about the Israelite people in their history, uh, being in the wilderness, being tested, being humbled, um, and you know they're instructed to follow follow the Lord, follow his commands. And, um, you know, it lays out, you know, you'll be blessed, this, that, and the other very good things. But then it also gives a warning, you know, once everything's going great and you've had these blessings from the Lord, like don't forget, you know, don't forget uh, to continue to be faithful. Don't turn away. Don't get complacent kind of. Um, and just as a whole, I think it's it's helpful for uh, – for life because you know when we they had bad things happen they're in the wilderness it's a test to humble them and you know we all have various things happen in our lives that test us and you know it's meant to grow us and humble us and turn us to the lord and similar to what the israelites did sometimes or some of them you know they would just get mad and bitter and turn away from the lord instead of being humbled uh and drawing closer to him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there are lines in Deuteronomy 8 that are echoed in the letter that James wrote. So, for example, in chapter 8, the Israelites are instructed to remember that God allowed them to wander in the wilderness so that they'd be humbled and so that God could test them. Um, And then James talks about the fact that when you're going through various trials— you're being tested. It's a test of your faith. So he, James warns them, don't don't say you're being tempted by God. You know where Israel, perhaps was was saying that or thinking that they needed to realize we shouldn't test God. God's testing us, and we need to respond with humility, which is another big thing that James picks up on. So I think you're right. It's a good encapsulation of everything that's happened in Genesis through Deuteronomy seven. Yeah, and I think especially in verse two. Uh, one thing that I thought about, um, just a line where it says uh, that he might test, humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. And I think a lot of times, you know, we, when, if something bad happens or you go through hard times, that's when you see the truest version of yourself when you're met with adversity, how you respond to it, what your attitude is. And a lot of times, you know, it can, it can show how much work we have to do on ourselves if uh, not not so great things come out that we don't like about ourselves in those situations. But it shows us who we are and it helps us to know, um, you know, where we need to grow and how much we need to rely on the Lord in those hard times because we are so flawed as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think we can identify with Israel who is tested. And with Abraham, who was tested, right? So we think of Genesis 22, where God tested Abraham. And after that event, God said, now I know, right? It's been revealed. And I think we just stand in a long line of individuals who are being tested and our hearts are being opened before the Lord. Uh, So that should be good motivation for us to pass the test, right? To um, let good things come out of good hearts as we go through trials. I like it. One of the best things about reading these texts is we're getting good chunks of the Bible altogether, but we have to remember that this takes place over 
a longer period of time than what we're reading. So I think sometimes we can feel like it's repetitive. So for example, Deuteronomy 8 has the heading, at least in the CSB, remember the Lord. And then in chapter 11, remember and obey. And uh, you start hearing these same things over and over again in with a maybe understandable perspective, it can kind of feel boring and repetitive, but we also forget these things are taking place over a longer time and in a dynamic circumstance. And then we have to figure out how we can um, import it into our lives or really live out what God is commanding here in, in terms of the spirit of what's, what's going on in our own dynamic and changing circumstances and allow the rhythm of this text to become the rhythm of our lives. If you've never thought about it, the first time that Jesus shed his blood was at his circumcision on the eighth day, and that took place in Luke chapter 2, which was part of the reading that we didn't discuss last week. And I don't want to spend too much time in those chapters in Luke 2 through 4, but I do want to make a couple of observations. The first is that uh, we really do have a different or more detailed account than Matthew, and certainly than than Mark. So we start to see the value of the four Gospels in a different uh, perspective than what John brings as well. So sometimes as we go through Luke, it might feel repetitive, but there really are more and different details that we should pick up on. Second, I want to point out that the genealogy is not at the start of the Gospel of Luke, but it shows up at the end of chapter 3 which is very different than Matthew, where the genealogy starts at the beginning, or Mark, where there is no genealogy at all. Uh, But more than that, the genealogy is a reverse genealogy. So instead of, like Matthew does, starting from the oldest generation, working the way down to Jesus, Luke starts with Jesus and works his way up to the oldest generation. And I think it's because he wants to leave us with the phrase in verse 38 that Jesus was a son of Adam, a son of God. And, and the whole point is that, that he's emphasizing Jesus's deity, perhaps, but I think more so that Jesus is the new and better Adam, so that where Adam led humanity into sin, Jesus will lead humanity into life. So immediately after identifying Jesus as a son of Adam, we get to chapter four, where there's there's the temptation of Jesus scene, which should, I think, lead us to connect Jesus's temptation, at least in this case, to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, but where Adam and Eve gave into temptation, where they failed, um, Jesus obviously does not. Then we see that term in <clears throat> chapter four right away. If you are the son of God, we yeah. see that, you know, and then he just used that in the genealogy. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that the devil is questioning whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. We're all operating as if that's true. The question is, what kind of son will you be? Will you be a son of God like Adam was the son of God, an unfaithful son, the prodigal son, we might say, who, who instead of receiving good gifts in the Father's time, takes them and runs away? Are you going to be an Adam-like son, or are you going to be a faithful son? And, and in fact, later on, we'll, in Luke, we'll get to the prodigal son, um, and someone enlightened me that, of course, we all know this, that there are lots of stories that pick up on the themes of the prodigal son, but there's a Christmas movie I really hate, or used to hate, 
I might have been transformed in just a moment, but it's called It's a Wonderful Life, kind of this Christmas movie. Are you guys familiar with this? Yes. It's it's the one where they talk about every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Anyway, the character main character is Jimmy Stewart, and um, there are two sons. One goes off to war while Jimmy stays home and takes care of his family. And then when... Uh, the brother gets back home after the war. He's a war hero, essentially. And someone asks where the mom is. And I think it's Jimmy Stewart who says she's probably in the kitchen preparing the fatted calf or something like that. So really, it's a prodigal son story. And the question is, will the son be trans, you know, will the son at home, Jimmy, be transformed to rejoice in the return and to learn that life with the father? Obviously, he you know, they're in a, it's transposed, different story, but life at home is actually a good life. So anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. But the, the point is that Jesus takes up the temptations of Adam, and where Adam fails, he succeeds. In the same way where Matthew pictures Jesus as taking up the temptations of Israel, uh, where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. So then we get into our reading for this week. So that, that was just a recap from last week. We're in Luke 5 through 8.25. And I don't know if you guys had anything specific you wanted to talk about. Otherwise, I'll just walk through a few things that I think are interesting. The first thing I want to say is that over and over again, we're going to see Jesus instructing attention to the law of Moses. So for example, in chapter 5, verse 14, after he healed the lep- the, the man with leprosy, he told this guy to go show himself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded. And as you're reading throughout, you're going to see that Jesus is giving people instruction to obey the law of Moses. But then you're also going to see Pharisees and religious elites accusing Jesus of not um, attending to the law of Moses, or at least not attending to their laws. But what we start to see is that Jesus is embodying the law, and he's living it out better and more righteously than the Pharisees are. Second, I think we need to pick up on the theme of Jesus and his authority. So he wants them to be able to recognize his authority, both to heal and forgive sins. And over and over again, you'll see that word authority show up. And then eventually, at the, towards the end of our reading, when the centurion asks for Jesus to come, he talks about he himself being a man under authority and with men under, who, who are under him, who he exercises authority over. And Jesus essentially says, this guy gets it. He gets that I have authority. And he gives a word of condemnation saying, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. So themes of Jesus and the law, Jesus and authority, particularly regarding the forgiveness of sin, show up here. And then the result of Jesus's work is often that people either go home and glorify God or they reject Jesus. Like those are the two two responses people have to his healings and forgiveness of sin. We get to this section at the end of chapter 5 where these individuals come up to Jesus and say, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. And then Jesus goes into a couple of parables. The first one essentially is, when the groom is with you, don't fast. Um, and Jesus essentially saying, I'm the groom, I'm here, so the party is with me. Why would we be fasting? But in verse 35, it's like this dark foreshadowing. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. 
And I think that's exactly what we see after Jesus is crucified. His disciples are hunkered down, essentially in this mode of fasting and mourning. But then he tells them a parable about the wine and the wineskins. And this is always a little bit confusing to me, but I think the whole point is that old wineskins would have broken with new wine that's going to ferment in there. And so you need new wineskins for the new wine. And the lines of comparison are, you have the Pharisees who want to live in the old way, but they, they, they can't receive the new work that Jesus is doing. Uh, so they need to be transformed to be able to receive that. But then at the end, in verse 39, Jesus says, And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new, because he says the old is better. And it seems like it's contradicting everything Jesus just said about needing new wine skins for the new wine. And I think it's actually a word of condemnation, saying these individuals don't recognize this new and good thing, and so they're going to continue on in their ways. In chapter 6, Jesus identifies himself with David. Uh, that's just a passing comment, but he he identifies with David, which he's the greater son of David, so we should pay attention to that. Uh, but the people he's interacting with are filled with rage. They They want to get rid of Jesus. That's not going to happen. So just as they're plotting to get rid of him, in verse 12 of chapter 6, Jesus spends all night in prayer, and then he summons disciples and chooses 12 of them. So as people are you know, figuring out how to get rid of him, he is just growing his, his people and his following. And then we get into uh, chapter 6, the Beatitudes. And the way that Luke has them recorded is slightly different than what Matthew has. But if you take Luke 20 through 23 and compare them with 24 through 26, they're almost perfect parallels. So blessed are you who are poor versus woe to you who are rich. Um, you've got the hungry and the full. You've got the weeping and those who are currently laughing. Um, you have those who are being insulted versus those who are being spoken well of. And then the last line for each of them is, you know, your re- rejoice, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. And then in the woe oracles, it's for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. So I, I think it's just a really clever um, way of, of putting this together. And obviously Luke is recording what Jesus did. He, this is like rhetorical skill. Um, and then he goes into some instructions. I think if you read Luke 6, 20 through the end of the chapter, it is just really hard um, not to feel convicted that you're not living in the way that Jesus gives. Uh, and, and that's even more convicting because at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord or master and don't do the things that I say? These things that he just said, you know, with the blessings and then these instructions to love your enemies and um, not to judge inappropriately, these sorts of things. It's like, why are you saying that I'm your Lord and your teacher if you're not going to do the things that I say? And uh, if you want to, if, if you do what I say, you're like a well-built house on a solid foundation. But if you're calling me Lord and you're not actually going to follow in my way, you're like a house that's going to collapse. And I, th- I think that's just really, really tough because we all like to say Jesus is our Lord and that we're followers of Christ, but we don't do what he says, especially in some of these commands to love um, and, and not to judge with the wrong measurements. 
Yeah, I also thought reading through that section was very convicting. You read a sentence and you know, think, am I loving people that way? Or am I merciful the way that Jesus is saying that? And it was such a beneficial section to just sit and uh, meditate on. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think um, sometimes we'll read these verses and think of application on a societal level. And we'll be like, well, we can't follow these on a societal level because there are sinners. And if you always are not holding back anything that's asked of you, these sorts of things, then society would just break down. And then we just ignore these texts altogether. Um, but as I was relaying to you guys about a little bit of, of uh, my weekend, as, as I'm thinking about these things, um, I'm instructed to love even when I'm not loved, to bless those who curse me or pray for those who mistreat you. And sometimes we realize we're on the end of mistreating people, and then they mistreat us perhaps in response. And then our response is to escalate it and mistreat more. But in those moments, especially since we're the cause of the whole problem, these instructions to bless is really something we just have to take up and die to ourselves and follow Jesus, which I don't really like doing, to be honest. I mean, I think that's good for us to recognize. Sometimes we read the Bible and we don't like what it's telling us to do, and we we need to do it anyway because that's the, the cost of discipleship. Yeah, but that's hard, isn't it? It really is to, in the moment, not respond to your default response, your sinful heart coming out in ways that would, you know, either, like you said, mistreat someone or, you know, even if it's an enemy or someone, but to, to work to bless them and think, how in this moment can I respond the way Jesus would respond? Or want me to respond. Yeah, exactly. But but there is a great promise with that, right? Um, then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. And I think in the past that's hit me as like, if you want to truly be a Christian, do these things. And And I don't think that's totally wrong, but I think that when he says that you will be children of the Most High, he's just saying you're going to look like your father. Like people will know you're his children because you resemble and reflect the father. Uh, and that's that's tough to do, but I think, do we want to represent God in this world? I, I think so. Uh, well, what does that mean then? It means following in the way of Christ. In Luke 7, starting in verse 11, Jesus is traveling, and uh, there's a dead man being carried out in a coffin. And a mother is, she's a widow as well. This was her only son. She's left all alone. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. And then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearer stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. That this is such an astounding account, and uh, I I just can't imagine that. Like, imagine being at a funeral, and someone walks up to the coffin, stops the pallbearers as they're carrying this guy out, opens the coffin, and tells the guy to get up, and he does. Like, I think we'd all be in shock if we saw that. That w- that would be remarkable. Um, and what's even more remarkable to me is. Jesus orchestrated this whole thing on purpose, it seems, because this is really close to what happens in 1 Kings 17 with Elijah and the widow, 
who he's staying with. Remember where she has the flower in the oil pat, pot? So this is First Kings 17. And the, the flower and oil don't run out. And then the son gets sick and stops breathing. And Elijah cries out to God and says, why would you do this to these people who have taken me in? And, and then the son is raised from the dead. Well, Jesus does like the exact same thing here, except in a greater way. Uh, so this is just a remarkable account. I don't recall if the Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is in Luke or not. I think that's only in John. I was thinking when Josh was preparing to preach that text, this is the only person that Jesus raised from the dead. And that's not true because it happened in this situation. Um, so for whatever that's worth, I, I think it's like a warning shot to death and the devil that Jesus can not only forgive sin, but he has power over death that's caused by sin. And he's showing uh, here, I'm, I'm raising this guy from the dead and it's a precursor to his own resurrection. I want to point out an, an ironic title in the Christian Standard Bible for a section of Luke 7, 31 through 35. The title for that or heading for that section is An Unresponsive Generation. But what's ironic about it is Jesus compares them to children who are upset that their audience doesn't respond to them. So he says, you're like children in the marketplace who are saying, we played a flute and you didn't start dancing. We sang a lament and you didn't weep. Uh, so it, he's like, I just think it's ironic that it's the unresponsive generation when they're upset that he's not responding to them in the way that they want. Um, so that's just a funny thing to point out. But then as we get to the end of our reading in chapter 7 and into 8 through verse 25, there's probably a lot that we could talk about, but I just want to... Um, comment a little bit on the Pharisee that invited Jesus to dinner. So he's been accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners and being a glutton and a drunkard by the Pharisees. And then immediately the next scene is where Jesus is eating with the Pharisees, or at least one of them, who doesn't get who Jesus is. Um, and it's another instance where throughout Luke, it just seems that Jesus is so perceptive and can read people's thoughts. This is not the first time that Jesus is able to understand what this Pharisee was thinking, who was looking at this woman washing Jesus's feet and was like, well, if this guy was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. And then it simply says, Jesus replied to him. He replied to his thoughts, essentially, and gave him this parable and explained how this woman has been saved from her sin, and and Jesus actually knows what's going on. So I just thought that's another interesting theme that we should pick up on, uh, especially as we get into the section where Jesus gives parables in Luke 9, where he talks about those who can't see and hear. Well, you've just seen a Pharisee who um, doesn't get what's going on, and Jesus can see and, and really, in a sense, hear his thoughts truly. Uh, so we want to listen to Jesus who who knows what reality is. Yeah, that part is a little striking to think about at least because the way Jesus handles that situation, there's su such an emphasis on what's in somebody's heart and not based on who they are or what they do or what they say, but it's based on just who they are, like who they truly are, what their heart truly is. And obviously that kind of gets back to the 
Deuteronomy passage of being tested to see what's in your heart, but it's, just, I don't know, just interesting to think about how important it is, um, just where our heart is at. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right. And that's emphasized all the more as we pay attention to the structuring of this book, where at least in our reading, there have been two significant meals, right? There's this one with the Pharisee, but then earlier in chapter five, Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi, and Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. And that's where the Pharisees accuse him and complain about Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus replies to them and says, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, And he's not suggesting that the Pharisees are indeed righteous and not sinners, but suggesting that you need to see yourself as a sinner and come to repentance. And that's what this lady does and what the Pharisee fails to do. I mean, I guess we don't know what that Pharisee does down the road, but at least in this account, Jesus is interacting with someone who's truly come to faith and become a repentant sinner, not just a hardened sinner. I think the call for us then is not to be like the Pharisee who uh, finds security in his own status in life and self-righteousness, but instead to recognize we're the woman and we need to be repentant. Um, and, And then we find from that as we repent and try to be like Jesus, a model for how we relate to other people as well. This is my passing comment that might not be podcast worthy. In chapter five, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Sometimes when we hear about the leaving everything behind, we might think in terms of like they sold everything that they had and they just were like became destitute homeless people who followed Jesus around. But then the next sentence is, then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. So I think when we we can sometimes wrongly fail to be willing to give up things in our following of Jesus, but then sometimes I think we also have this unrealistic idea of what it means to give up everything and follow Jesus, uh, especially I think uh, more college angsty Aaron was like, I don't want to own a home ever. I don't want to like be like the wealthy of this world or like an average American because that's not, not what people did who followed Jesus. They gave up everything they had. Um, but that's not really totally the case here. Uh, because you have someone like Levi who still owned his home, you know. Uh, But on the other hand, as Jesus goes about teaching in chapter 8, we do recognize that Mary, called Magdalene, who had seven demons, that's something maybe notable, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others, were supporting Jesus and the disciples from their possessions. So clearly they're selling some of the things that they have so they can fund Jesus's ministry. You know, it's maybe like the original Kickstarter, like, I don't know, hey, I'll cast seven demons out of you and you can contribute towards our ministry (laughs) or something like that. I I don't know how that ended up working, but there are people who did sell what they had to support Jesus and his disciples. Uh, So I think we just want to recognize the cost of discipleship is always living out Jesus's teaching and sometimes includes selling your physical possessions and and maybe sometimes it doesn't. I've heard speculation. You're talking about funding Jesus ministry 
the account where there's like tons and tons of fish when they throw the nets in. Is that like a bank account, but instead of money, you have fish in it? Well, it doesn't say what they did with the fish once they caught like a zillion fish. Yeah. They probably sold them and, you know, they had the money to fund the ministry from all those fish. Yep. Yeah, I was making a joke about the fact that you started with the account of when they caught fish. You know, like a bank account, but a fish account. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't catch it. It's too early. No, I think that's probably right. Yeah, you got to get money. I mean, Jesus also sometimes was like, "Hey, grab that fish and pull the coin out of its mouth." So maybe all of the fish they caught also had coins in their mouth, so they had double the profits. I don't. I don't know. I mean, anything is possible. Amen. <laughs> Well, this has been a great time talking about the Bible once again, and uh, I just want to encourage everyone, as you're reading, keep it up, um, keep reading the Bible. I think sometimes we walk away not feeling like we've gained anything, but I think certainly, as I've read, especially through Luke texts, uh, there, there's a lot that actually is important for guiding our lives now, and it's convicting, frustrating sometimes, but ultimately, I think we want to Uh, resemble our Father in heaven. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can go to resurrectionmn.org. We're also really excited about our upcoming Good Friday and Easter services. We would invite you and anyone you would like to bring with you to attend these services. If you're a member of our church, be sure to pick up one of the flyers that are available in the lobby on Sunday.